1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and then we'll go ahead and pray. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, it says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so before we pray, uh, for those of you that are veterans that are in attendance this morning, if you would please stand. Praise God. And now also, anyone that might be active duty, if you would join them, if you guys can please remain standing, we're going to pray over you. Truly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much for your sacrifice. We are blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you continue to, to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that your amazing works have never ceased to amaze. That your, your love, your grace, your mercy poured out upon us day by day is just mind-blowing. Father, and, and what a privilege it is to be a part of your family and to be your children and, and to be able to have your word to study this morning. We pray that as we, we prepare to study it, that you would anoint and fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit, that you would lead us and guide us in your truth. And Father, this morning we also lift up all of those that, that have served this country in military service, Father. We thank you for our veterans. We thank you for those that are on active duty and those that are in the reserves right now, Father. It has been such a, a difficult thing for so many, Father, and so many more that have even given their lives. And so we lift each one of them up to you, Father. We thank you for, for all that they've done for this country and for each of us. We thank you, Father, that you have done such a work to, to guard and to protect these men and women. We pray, Father, for your continued blessing upon them and their families. We pray, Father, for all those that are in active duty and reserves, that, that you would set a hedge of protection about them, Father, that, that they would know that their strength can come from you, Father, that you would be their rear guard, that you would be their forward shield, Father, that you would just set your angels about them, that you would guard and protect them everywhere that they go, and Lord, that you would let them always know that not only are they loved by you, but Father, that they are loved and appreciated by this body as well. And so we thank you for them, and we thank you, Father, that this morning we can gather together so freely in this country, so freely in this place, and to be able to worship you, and in part because of their sacrifice. And so we commit this time unto you, we commit each one of our hearts unto you, and we ask and pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Thank you, guys.
So this morning, we're going to touch on a couple of hot-button issues, and that, that always seems to be the case when, when I get the opportunity to share, and it's not intentional, I promise you. It just kind of happens that way, but on Wednesday night, for those of you that, that might have been here and joined us, we talked a little bit about a lot of different things, but one of the most interesting things that we started with is the fact that 2020 has been an extremely challenging and strange year. I mean, from the very beginning, we, we've had to deal with so many different things. We've had global tensions from China to Russia to Iran to Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, all throughout the Middle East, literally all throughout the globe. We've had an impeachment and an acquittal of a sitting U.S. president for the first time since 1992. There have been questions about how much authority a government should have and whether or not our government, on whatever level, has overreached that authority. There have been questions about how useful or necessary the U.S. Constitution is, and even whether or not it should be rendered null and void, and whether we should blow up the whole system and start from scratch. We've had peaceful protests and raucous riots, and sometimes those are actually the very same event. We've had a contentious election, which now seems to be nearing its conclusion if it hasn't already been completed. And from president to senators to representatives and on down the ballot, it has been extremely divisive. And the repercussions of the actions of both sides these past few months and years are going to be felt for many years to come. We had COVID-19. We still don't know exactly how it started. We can't be certain exactly how it spreads. We still haven't found a way to stop it. We've talked about lockdowns and quarantines and masks. For some of you that have really dived into it, you've had the debate about whether or not we're doing mitigation or suppression. You've had the admonition to follow the science. We've had several holidays canceled, and now Thanksgiving is on the chopping block. And that's not even including all the regular stuff that wreaks havoc on families day in and day out, year in and year out. So 2020 has been hard. It's been a lot for us to take in. And it's been even harder for many within our country and even within our own fellowship here. We've even suffered the loss of different family members and friends that are close to us. We also discussed on Wednesday night that there are many things that have gone on, but it may get worse before it gets better. It may get worse before it gets better. But throughout all of it, the need for us is to focus on our character and our faith and that those things both need to be founded upon Jesus Christ. And so today, that's where we start, is the need for us to recognize who we are, first and foremost, as children of God that we recognize that, that we not only talk about that, that we not only say that, that we not only call ourselves Christians, but that we truly recognize what it means to be that. And then we talk a little bit about some of the responsibilities. We've shared before about different, different areas that God has laid out in his word about some of the responsibilities. But one of the things that I think sometimes gets glossed over or thrown out there but not talked about enough and not fully filled in is the power of, rep of repentance, the power of repentance. And so this morning, that's where we're going to end up. But in order to get to that place, we need to talk a little bit about who we are. And so that's where we get to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, Coming to him as to a living stone, this is speaking of Jesus, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are first being built up as a spiritual house 
So he says that, that we're talking about coming to Jesus as to a living stone, this foundation, this cornerstone, this chief cornerstone, elect and precious, that it is God who in his infinite wisdom, mercy, and love towards us and his grace towards us, he gave us his son that, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To be able to be a part of that family, to have this eternal inheritance. And so he says here that we come to Jesus as to this living stone, this chief cornerstone, this foundation upon we build everything else. That he was rejected by men, but he was chosen by God. That God had a plan and a purpose even before time began. That he knew how man would fail. He knew how man would fall. Not just Adam. You know, sometimes it becomes so easy for us to read through the accounts at the beginning of Genesis and think, well, yeah, but Adam blew it. I didn't mess up. Like, if I had been in the garden, I wouldn't have done that. You know, I wouldn't have listened to my wife. What was he thinking? You know, we we think like that sometimes. And, And for you ladies here, well... I, I wouldn't have done that. I, I was way smarter than Eve, whatever it is. But the reality is that all of us would have failed. At some point, all of us would have failed. It might not have been the same way, but it would have come. And the enemy would have used that to separate them just like he did from the relationship that we were called to have with God. And so God, in his wisdom, his grace, his mercy, his love towards us, he poured out all of that wrath upon his son that he paid the price for our sins. And, and one of the things that we always need to recognize with that is that if you lived 100 years, 100 years, and over the course of that 100 years, you literally committed one sin. Maybe you told what's called a little white lie. You said one little white lie out of, out of 100 years of life on this earth, and that was the only thing that you ever did wrong, the only sin that you ever committed. Do you know what the penalty for that would have been? Eternal damnation in hell. For that one little white lie over the course of a hundred years, it's not as so many people like to believe, well, if my good outweighs my bad, then I'm okay. Your bad, one single bad thing, one single sin outweighs all the good that we could ever do in our entire lives. One single little sin. And so all of us here have committed more than one. All of us. Even since we gave our lives over to Jesus Christ, all of us have still committed more than one sin because we're not perfect. But we come to him as this living stone, and we are living stones to build on top. But notice that we're not called to be individual altars. We are called together to come to this living stone to Jesus, to build upon this foundation. In verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. That we are being built together that we are intertwined, that it's not enough for us to just look at ourselves and say, well, what have I done? But we have to build this house, build this body, build this family. Something that I've shared before, and and not just from the pulpit, but also in in individual conversations, is that that is one of the things that, that I truly feel that God really wants to grow in this particular body, this particular fellowship here, is fellowship is being able to get to know one another, to be able to grow together, to be knit together, to understand that that we have more in common than we realize, to be able to go and to do things outside of the four walls of the church, but to do them and to enjoy them with other believers, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is such a blessing. Over the last couple of months, it's been challenging. 
because of COVID and all of the different things that have gone on, but still there have been opportunities for us to be able to fellowship, to grow together as a spiritual house. We talk about the body of Christ and we talk about the physical church and we talk about the invisible church or the visible and the invisible. The visible church are all of the people that gather together, they call themselves Christians and they walk into the doors of a church. This church, another church, another denomination, whatever it is, they call themselves Christians. That is the physical, visible church. But that is not the body of Christ. The body of Christ, this spiritual group of stones that is being built up together as a living spiritual house, that's the invisible church. Because unfortunately, not every single person that calls themselves a Christian is actually a child of God. When you go through the Gospels, what does Jesus say? That, that many, not just a few, but he says that many will come and say, did I not prophesy in your, na- in your name? Did I not do all of these things in your name? And then he will say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, I never knew you. And it's many. There are a lot of people that walk in the doors of a church that call themselves Christians that are not. And so this, this morning, this is not directed towards you. If you have yet to make that true profession of faith and that, that conversion has yet to take place, then that's where you need to start. You can't get to all the rest of the things that we're going to talk about here this morning until you've gotten to that place. So I would challenge you, encourage you, it doesn't take more than a moment for God to change your life, to change your heart. And so if you haven't made that that profession of faith, do that now. But we are being called to be the spiritual house, the invisible church. But the second thing here is that we've been called to be a holy priesthood, to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be different, to be chosen and selected for a purpose. We've talked a little bit about what holiness is. And holiness, contrary to what many people believe, is not perfection. Holiness is to be set apart, to be pulled out, to be called for something special, to be called for something different. And until this week, I had never heard this this description and, and the analogy, and it was so perfect for me. It made me understand very, very clearly. When we talk about things like Hall of Fames, and we'll use the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown as an example. The, the Hall of Fame is filled with a bunch of ordinary items. It's baseballs, it's baseball gloves, it's catcher's gear, a, a cap, maybe some pants or a jersey, cleats, socks. These are all things that you can buy any, at any sports store. You can buy most of those things at Walmart. So it's not that the items themselves were special. It's who used them that made them so unique and so special, and that's why they're in the Hall of Fame. And in that same way, that is what we're talking about, to be a holy priesthood. It's not because we're so special or unique or different or God couldn't do this without us. It's who it is that's calling us, who it is that's using us, that's set us apart, and that's God. So God has called us, and so we have been called to be this holy priesthood of his, and that is to be a priesthood For a purpose, notice that he says to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, that we offer up these spiritual sacrifices. We offer up sacrifices of praise. We just finished that. But we also offer ourselves as what? As living sacrifices. We are living sacrifices. And so we are these living stones, this holy priesthood, and these living spiritual sacrifices that we are offering up to God that will be acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, not through what we do, but through what Jesus has done. So we are offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture 
Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Again, Jesus, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And that is not talking about an earthly shame. There are people on the earth right now that are going to try to put you to shame just because you have a living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that when everything is complete, that at the end of this life, you will by no means be put to shame. And that is so much more important than anything that man could do in this life. It is so much more important. And he says that he will by no means be put to shame. But then he continues on in verse 7. He says, therefore, to you who believe, again, that's who we're talking to this morning, to you who are part of the invisible church, the true body of Christ, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected, again, this is speaking of Jesus, has become the chief cornerstone, and he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And so there is this description here of those who believe versus those who are disobedient. One of the things that we need to recognize is that there is more to it than just believing. We also need to be obedient. That doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you're never going to, to miss out on being disobedient, if you want to put it that way. Because we still do. We still are. But there are those who are still disobedient, and there isn't mercy extended because they haven't come to believe in Jesus Christ. So therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient... Now, Jesus is a stone of stumbling, and it's a rock of offense. And there are many things that are in the Word of God that are offensive to those that are not children of God. There are many things in the Word of God. There are some things that are hard, even for those of us that are children of God. There are times that we read through the Word of God, and, and it's like being pricked to the heart, just cut deeply. When you recognize, and there are times, I, I'm sure that many, if not all of you can relate, that you're reading through the Word of God, and you go through a passage that maybe you've read tons of times before, and you get to that passage, and that day, for whatever reason, God is speaking to your heart about this one thing in your life that you never even noticed, and it just burdens you so much because you realize how far off you were on that one thing. And that God is wanting to take that away. He's wanting to change that part of you. And, and you didn't realize how, how much that thing had meant to you, how much you had allowed it to become a part of your life. And so it's painful sometimes. But we do it because we know who we serve and we know who we are. Now think about that same thing for somebody who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't have that purpose. Well, not only is it, it painful, but, but it's offensive. How dare you tell me how to live my life? How dare you tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? It becomes offensive. And so they stumble being disobedient to the word, not being disobedient to the church, not being disobedient to a pastor or a church leader or a Christian, but they stumble being disobedient to the word. And I think that that is one of the things as we, we move on and we get towards the time of, of looking at repentance, that is something that I think the body of Christ at large, I'm not talking about anybody in particular this morning, but all of us as a body of Christ, sometimes we allow ourselves to get in the way when talking to non-believers. Because we, we make ourselves as the authority, or the church is the authority, or some pastor is the authority. 
And it's not that. It is never meant to be that. It is not the church that has the authority. It is not the pastor. It's not the elder, the deacon. It's not the the child of God that's known Jesus for 50 years, 80 years. It is the word of God that has the authority because the word of God comes from the Father. And so they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. And then in verse 9, he says, in contrast to, to these people, but you are a chosen generation, a chosen generation. And I, I love the, the reminder there that it, it's a chosen generation, not chosen generation and then some, but that you are a chosen generation because God doesn't have grandkids. You know, that, that's a, a pithy little thing that we say, but it's true. God doesn't have any grandkids. He just has sons and daughters. He just has sons and daughters. My relationship with Jesus is my relationship with Jesus. It's not because of my parents' relationship with Jesus. It's not because of my grandparents or my aunts or uncles or anybody else. It's because of my relationship with Jesus. My kids, by the very same token, they have to have that relationship with Jesus. They can't rely upon mine, my relationship, to be a part of the family. They have to have their own relationship with Jesus. And so he says they were a chosen generation, but then he says a royal priesthood. We've already talked about being a priesthood, but now this royal priesthood, and until I was studying this week, I didn't really recognize what a a powerful phrase that is. Two words there, and yet so powerful, because if you look back, the, the children of Israel did such a great job of separating the two, and they were always separate. There were were these lines there, and so there was royalty, and then there was the priesthood. And yet we've we've been called to be both. We've been called to be both. We are, are children of the king, children of the king, chosen generation, and a royal priesthood. The second thing there, the royal priesthood, the priesthood being able to have direct access to the Father, that we don't have to worry about going through somebody else. We don't have to worry about, you know, you go talk to God for me and you tell me what he says. You know, the children of Israel, that, that's how bad things happened right after they had come out of Egypt. You know, Moses goes up with Joshua and, and he goes to get the Ten Commandments. And, and why did he go up by himself? If you notice, it wasn't just that God had called him to come by himself. It was the people. They said, no, 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 you go, Moses, you go talk to God. Because we don't want to go because he might smite us. He might wipe us all out. So you go talk to God and you come back and you tell us what he said. And for so many people, that's what they rely upon is, well, no, no, no. I come to church so that you can tell me what God says. No, you come to church so you can gather together to iron, sharpen iron, to be able to be built up, as we read here, as living stones, as a spiritual house, so that we can do this thing together. And yes, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be able to be taught the Word of God, but that doesn't mean that that's the only time that you should learn about the Word of God. All of us should have, again, that personal, individual relationship with Jesus Christ that leads us back to the Word so that we're growing in it. We learn it. And sometimes we have questions, and it's good as we are being built up as spiritual stones into a spiritual house to be able to to have discussions with each other, to be able to ask those questions. Hey, I was reading this the other day. What do you think? You know, this is what I I feel like it means. What do you think? How is God using this in your life? 
I, I have the, the privilege to be able to lead worship for the women's Bible study on Tuesday mornings. And then because of the technology aspect, a lot of times I listen into the, to the study as well. And it's so, so cool for me to be able to hear the question and answer at the end as they go through and they discuss, well, what, what, what is God speaking to you all this week about some of the questions? And to hear some of the insights and the ways that God is working, it's such an encouragement. It is an encouragement for others when they hear how God is working in our lives, just as it is an encouragement for us when we hear how God is working in theirs. And that's something that we need to continue to take advantage of, that we are a priesthood, not just an altar unto yourself, but that we are part of this greater priesthood. And then he says a holy nation, and he's not just talking about the United States. He's not just talking about Israel. He's not just talking about wherever. He's talking about his people. His people, a holy nation set apart to be different. And then he says his own special people. And then again, for a purpose, the first time through, back in verse 4, we read through and, and we got all the way in. And then it's for a purpose to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And now here, we are all of these things, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may do something, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And again, the difference between mercy and grace, grace is getting a bunch of things good things that you didn't earn, that you didn't deserve. And mercy is not getting the full consequence of all of the penalties that you deserve. And so when he says here that, that you once had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy, again, the picture is that not, not that we became perfect when we became children of God, that hopefully we are working towards that. Hopefully our lives are closer to the example of Jesus today than they were yesterday and than they were a month ago, a year ago, and when we first came to know the Lord. Hopefully we are trending in the right direction, to use the modern phrase. Hopefully we are trending in the right direction, but we still stumble. And so we are the people of God who receive mercy when, not if, when we stumble. And so... Again, that doesn't mean that we're, we're called to, okay, well, I can just go do whatever because I, I've now obtained mercy. No, we are still called to be men and women of good conduct. Because in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so he says here, I beg you as sojourners, as pilgrims, as people who are not from this place, as people who are passing through, as people who cannot get bogged down just here. When I was younger, there was a, a band, a Christian rock band called Petra, and I, I think they might even still be around, but they had a song called Not of This World. And the song, one of the verses in the chorus said, we are pilgrims in a strange land. We are so far from our homeland. With each passing day, it seems so clear this world will never want us here. We're not welcome in this world of wrong. We are foreigners who don't belong. We are strangers. We are aliens. We are not of this world. And it's amazing what a change happened from the moment that we became children of God. From the moment that we gave our lives over to Jesus Christ, Things began to be different. 
we saw things differently. There are things that we felt like we could not have lived without. And then God gradually begins to take those, those desires away. He replaces them with things that are so much better, things of him. There are things that we, looking back, we would have never believed that that would have been something that we could have gotten away from, something that we could have given up, because it just so dominated our lives. And yet now you look at what God has done. But no matter how long we're called to stay here on the earth, as children of God, this is no longer our home. This is not where the story ends. We need to strive to be as helpful as possible to this world and to the people of it as we try to lead them to Jesus. But this is not where we end up. Jesus didn't say, where you are, there I will come and there we will be together. He said that I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also. He's coming back to get us to take us from this place, to take us to the place that he's preparing. We need to enjoy being like Jesus here on the earth, even knowing that we're strangers, even knowing that there are going to be people that, that disagree with us. There are going to be people that, that even to the point of hating us. One of the things that I shared on Wednesday night is something that many in the, the United States body of Christ don't recognize because of the privileges that we have here is that Christianity, Christians, are one of, if not the most persecuted people group on the earth. There are more Christians that die for their faith on the earth than pretty much any other people, group, or religion. I mean, stop and think about that. We don't recognize that so much here because it's so different. When we talk about persecution right now here in the United States, I mean, it's not even worthy of being called persecution in comparison to what goes on in other countries. And yet we're, oh, woe is me, and I, I can't believe it, and, and they're coming to, to tell us when we can meet and when we can't or whatever. Nobody's threatening to kill you if you gather together. That happens every day around the world. So even though that would be it, even if it were, were being counterculture or unpopular or even to the extent of giving your life, we need to enjoy being like Jesus. To recognize that no man will be put to shame who has put his faith in Jesus Christ. Because at the end of all things, we'll be able to spend all of eternity with him. And that is a promise. In 1 Peter chapter 2, going to the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And we, let's start in verse 3. If you have indeed tasted that the Lord is gracious. That is something that we need to remember, that the Lord is gracious. I shared last night that, that when I was much more immature in the faith, that I would come to nights of prayer. Not nights of prayer and worship, not nights of, of doing other things and prayer, but, but truly just a night of prayer. It was just a prayer meeting. That is, that's all we were going to do. We were just going to get together, and we were going to spend this time in prayer. And people would start praying, and, and they would start with just all of this uh, good things, but it was just like this on and on about how good God is and all the works that he's done and, and creation and his majesty and his holiness and his righteousness and his love. And, and in my mind, I was thinking, okay, you're, 
this is a, a prayer meeting. You're preaching to the choir. You know, God knows who he is, and, and we know who God is. That's why we're here. But the reality is, that's where our prayer life should always start, is a reminder to us, not to God, because God knows who he is, but a reminder to us of how gracious God is, of who he is and who, who we are in comparison to that. Because when we start by giving the glory and the honor to God, and we, we just think about all that God is, then we have no standing. It is so much easier to go to God humbly after acknowledging who he is. But sometimes we, we don't come humbly. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we don't come humbly. We come with a, I claim it and I'm going to pray it because I have the faith and this is going to be it. And this is the way it's going to be done. That is not humility. That is not humility. We need to recognize who we are and who we are not and who God is most importantly. And so that's the thing is if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious and if you are his child, then I promise you, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You have partaken of his goodness and his grace towards you because he is he is abundantly gracious. There is so much that happens in our lives. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Every single good and perfect gift. We talk about small miracles. There is no such thing as a small miracle. By its very definition, a miracle is miraculous. It is a big deal. Think about the miracles that God has already done in your life and in mine. Just in this room today, the miracles that have taken place. God is amazing. And if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, then we need to lay aside all of these things. Malice, the things that, that are being done by those even inside the, the body of Christ with ill intent. Where we, we start to get to the place where, where we wish bad things upon people. That's malice. That's not something that we want to do. We need to recognize that it is so much better to pray for God's blessings upon people. If there are people that we disagree with, if there are people that have issues with the way that we are, that have issues because we are standing upon the word of God, we need to pray that God would open their eyes, not to pray that bad things would happen to them. So laying aside all malice, then he says laying aside all deceit. Not to twist the word of God to make it say something that it doesn't. Not to twist the word of God and make it seem like, okay, well, God is totally against this, but he's okay with these things. That's not the word of God. Sin is sin. We need to recognize that. We need to call it what it is. And so that's part of laying aside all deceit. But the big one here for us this morning as we're going to start talking about repentance is the hypocrisy. And that, that's something that inside and outside the church Everybody wants to talk about the hypocrites that are in the church. I mean, think about that. That's, that's, it's almost comical that people that don't even come to a church want to talk about the hypocrites in a church. But they do have some truth to it because there are a lot of hypocrites in the church. There are a lot of things that are said and done that should not be done. And then there are a lot of people who are one way here and a totally different way when they're by themselves or when they're with people that are not children of God. That's not supposed to be us. We're, if we're children of God, we're children of God, period. Not because, we're not children of God only when we're with other children of God. We are children of God everywhere that we go. And the example that we are called to give, to be, 
these living sacrifices, these living stones being built up into a spiritual house, that doesn't just happen inside of the walls of a church. That has to happen everywhere that we go. We need to make sure that we are not only talking a good game, but that we are walking a good game, that we are living a good game. And as we're going to get to it in a little bit, that even the very thoughts and intents, the meditations of our heart as we sang this morning, that those are the things that even unto that, that it's acceptable to God, that all of it is acceptable to God. So he says, laying aside hypocrisy, laying aside envy and evil speaking. These are things that that ought not to happen inside the body. But then he says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That is so awesome that, that God has given us a way to grow. That he, he not only said grow, but then he said how to grow. You know, we talk about partaking, tasted that the Lord is gracious. What are some of the gracious gifts, the undeserved favor that we receive from God? Obviously, one of the first ones and the most important one is salvation through his son, Jesus. We've also been given entrance into this family of God and the the eternal inheritance that comes with it. Paul in Ephesians writes about having been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's a, a past tense that we have already been given all of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. It's not something that, that, well, when you earn it or when you get to the the certain level, when you get to level 10 as a Christian, then God's going to pour out some spiritual blessings on your life. That's not what he said. He said that we have been granted all of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. But then something that we don't often or don't often enough take advantage of is the all excess pass to the answer key for life here on the earth. And that is God's word. We have an all-access pass. And if we, we have questions about it, he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can know what it meant, so that we can know what, what application there is for our lives, how we're supposed to change, how we're supposed to grow, how we're supposed to be different. And so he says, as newborn babes, that you would desire the pure milk of the word of God and grow in it. And that leads us to Psalm 19, verse 7, where David writes about all these different beautiful parts of what the word of God is. And so in verse seven, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So it's complete. It is complete. It has everything that is necessary for life and godliness in it. The word of God, the law of the Lord is perfect and complete, and it converts the soul. It changes us. It converts us. Day by day, moment by moment, that we are transformed, that, that through the renewing of our mind, that we are growing more and more like Jesus Christ. He says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's sure. It's true. It's constant. And it makes wise the simple. It brings wisdom. It makes wise the simple. Basically, what he's saying is it takes fools and makes them not fools anymore. And that's, that's who we are. On our own, we are fools. But it says that the testimony is sure and it makes wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. They are always right. Regardless of what anyone else says or thinks, regardless of of who it offends, regardless of how they feel about it, the statutes of the Lord are right. They are level. They are just. They are complete. They are upright. And they bring rejoicing to the heart. They bring rejoicing. When we follow the statutes of the Lord, when we do the things that God has called us to do, he keeps us in this this place of, of, of blessing and protection. You know, when you go through the book of Exodus and you go through the 
a lot of the laws and the regulations and all of these things. And, and you can get bogged down and think, man, they had so many things that they had to do. But when you look through it medically and scientifically, so much of what they were told to do was for their own good, for their blessing, for their protection. Because of the state of medicine and, and technology in that time, these things, these rules, these regulations, these restrictions that God placed upon them kept them from so many diseases from so many different things that happened to the rest of the world. Because God in his infinite wisdom, his love, his grace, his mercy towards his children, because he set up these rules, not so that he could take the fun out of their lives, but so that he could protect them. And so it says here that, that it's just, it's upright, it's complete, and it's a cause for rejoicing. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Again, it's pure, it's perfect, it's clean, without deviation. And it brings enlightenment and wisdom. It enlightens the eyes. There's a song that we sing a lot here, Open the Eyes of My Heart. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, enlightening the eyes. That, that's the picture here is that the commandment of the Lord is pure, and it shows us more and more who God is. We are able to see so much more, to draw closer to him, to learn more about him, to be able to be more like Jesus the more that we get to know his word. And so it's an enlightenment of the eyes. But then he continues in verse 9, he says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's clean, it's morally pure, it's righteous, and it's free and clear of the tangled webs that we weave apart from God. Think about that. It is free and clear from the tangled webs that we weave apart from God. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's clean. It, it endures. It, it stands the test of time. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so is his word. And then he says, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We have all been called at one time or another in our lives to judge over something. And we know how difficult and challenging it can be to be a good judge, to be an unbiased judge, especially if it's someone that we know. But because God is perfect, he judges without partiality. He judges perfectly, even when it comes to his children. And that's our benchmark, is to listen to all of the facts, to take everything in, and then to pray, to ask that God would give us discernment so that we would be true and righteous judges in everything that God calls us to be. That we are true and righteous judges of everything that God has called us to be. So we take it all in. And not only are all of these things great descriptions of the word of God, but they are all intertwined and they're a blessing to us. And they are a guide for us to walk by, to live by, so that we can grow in them. And when we live by the word of God, there is great reward. And it doesn't mean that, that if you do everything that's laid out in the Bible, that you're going to be a millionaire or that you're always going to be healthy or that you're never going to go through problems. That's not what he's talking about. The greatest rewards Two of the greatest rewards that we have are, first and foremost, the benefit of staying close to Jesus. And then the second thing is the promise of eternal life. I mean, those are the two of the greatest rewards. But even on top of that, we don't have to receive the consequences of the failures that God is keeping us from when we do what he's called us to do. Because there are so many times that, that we are disobedient to God and we, we look back they say hindsight is twenty twenty, right? We look back and we recognize, man, if I had only listened to God, if I had only listened to the leading of the Holy Spirit in my life in that situation, 
things would have turned out so much better. I wouldn't be dealing with the drama that I'm dealing with. I wouldn't be dealing with the hurt that I'm dealing with. I wouldn't be dealing with the pain that I'm dealing with. Because that's what sin causes. That's what disobedience to God's word causes. It always comes back to bite us. And it bites hard when it comes back. You know, we talk about, well, it was a little sin. But that little sin has all of these ripple effects. It has repercussions, not just in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us. Because we've been called to be these spiritual stones being built up as a spiritual house together to do this right. So what is it? What is the responsibility for us then when we do fall off the rails, when we do get off track? The importance is repentance. But what does that really mean? What does repentance mean? In verse 12 of Psalm 19, he says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. And Paul talks about a very similar idea when he says, the things that I wish to do, those I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. That's us. David was the same way. Who can understand his errors? How can I make sense of why I know what to do? I know all the things that are supposed to be done. And I still go and I do these other things instead. Or, I know that this thing that I'm about to do is wrong for so many different reasons. But first and foremost, because God said it's wrong. And then I still go down that path. Who understands why we always do that? Not that every time we do, but every time that we do it, every time that we sin, like, do you have a reason? I don't. I can't look back at any single one and really, okay, well, that was a good reason. You know, I I could see where somebody could mess that one up. There's never been a good reason for me to sin. Never. And he says, who can understand his errors? And then he says, cleanse me from my secret faults. And secret faults could be two different types of things. One is the ones that we don't even realize that we committed. Things that we came to know the Lord and we're still growing in the word and we're still growing in the knowledge and the understanding of what God has called us to be and and where God is calling us to go. And we just haven't gotten around to that part where God's trying to say, hey, look, this is the next thing I want to change in you. But that's not an excuse for us to, to sin. You know, the example in a secular sense is there are a lot of bad drivers out there, right? Amen? Like, let's, let's be honest. There's a lot of bad drivers out there. And it's not okay for you to break the law while you're driving and then go to the judge and say, well, I just didn't know. That's never an excuse. I, I've tried that. I did, didn't go well. The judge didn't agree with me. He said, the law says this. I don't care what you knew or didn't know. You should know better. Those are secret faults. The other secret faults are the things that have happened that we knew were wrong, and we just never went back and asked for forgiveness. How often does that happen? I mean, that was, when I, when I was reading through and studying that, that, that hit home hard. Because there are things that happen in our lives that, that we, we recognize and we know we did wrong. Maybe we even go, and if it was a wrong that involved another person, we even go and we ask for forgiveness, and we, we make things right with that person. But do we ever do that with God? 
Do we go back and do we ask forgiveness from God so that there can be this, this fullness, this completeness in our relationship so that there's nothing blocking everything that God wants to speak to our hearts? Those are also secret faults, things that we've totally forgotten about. And he says, cleanse me from my secret faults. And then he says, to keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And those are the things like we talked about that we know better. We have learned, we have studied, we've been told, we've been encouraged, we've been exhorted. We've maybe even fallen into that sin before and had to seek forgiveness and had to be restored, and then we go back. Those are the presumptuous sins, the sins that we commit when we know the law, we agree with the law, and we still intentionally walk down that path. But presumptuous sins can also be the ones that we disagree with. That yes, we know the law. We know what it says. We know what God has called us to do. Other people have reminded us the word of God has been very clear. The spirit is pressing upon our hearts. And so we know clearly what is right and what is wrong. We just disagree. Well, God, that's not fair. Or God, you don't understand my situation. Those are presumptuous sins as well. And so he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let none of these things have dominion over my life because that is what happens when we allow sin to just build up in our lives. They, they take dominion. They control us. It blocks the things that God is trying to speak to our hearts, the things that God is trying to do in us. And they begin to, to cause our hearts to grow cold. We studied on Wednesday night about how lawlessness will abound and as lawlessness abounds, that the heart of many will grow cold. And that has happened within the body of Christ in the United States. I'm not saying that every single person, even here, I'm not saying that all of us, our hearts have grown cold. But as a, as a living body, there are so many hearts that have grown cold. Lawlessness abounds, and, and so much is because of these things. Because we need to be cleansed from these things. That then we can be blameless, as he says, and be innocent of great transgression, not perfect, but that now we've obtained mercy, and that now we have gone back for forgiveness, and now we can repent. Now we can turn away. Sometimes we, we separate the two, and we, well, I asked for forgiveness, and so that's it. Or, well, I turned away. And that's it. But no, those things have to come together. There has to be a, a, a seeking of forgiveness from God and then a seeking of his power to not only restore us, but to help us not to go back to where he just brought us from. Not to go back to where he's restoring us from. They go hand in hand. And if it's one without the other, it's incomplete. It is incomplete. So we need to have both, and then we can be innocent of great transgression, and then we get to that last level, so to speak, which is verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That not only is it the actions, not only is it the, the things that people see, or the, the words that people hear, but the very thoughts and intents of my heart, because that's, that's what the Spirit can see down to the division of bone and marrow, to the very thoughts and intents of our hearts, that even that would be acceptable in the sight of God. And what does it mean to be acceptable in the sight of God? It's not like God is grading on a curve and he says, well, you know, if you get kind of close, these are acceptable. It's either acceptable or unacceptable. That's it. It's pass-fail. It's not an A, B, C, D kind of a grade scale. It's a pass or fail. Either it's acceptable in his eyes 
which means it's right, it's righteous, it's godly, it's good, or it's not. There's no gray area, there's no grading on a curve, it's either right or it's not. So that everything in our lives would be acceptable in the sight of God. And again, like I shared, it's not just about us as individuals. I think this is kind of a place that, that I really, I personally believe this is a place that we are in as a nation, and specifically as the body of Christ in this nation, is that we need to get to this place where Nehemiah and Daniel were, as we're going to study right now, of, of being a part of acknowledging the failures. We, we want to say that, well, people in the church are doing this. People outside the church are doing this. People in this political party are saying this. People in another political party are saying this. We need to first get past all of that and recognize who the body of Christ is called to be and how we have failed and then seeking forgiveness, seeking repentance, and then that God would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know and to understand the way forward, what it is that God wants from us. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so Nehemiah is not there. Nehemiah is in a totally different place, as we're going to see towards the end of this chapter. Nehemiah is actually doing pretty well for himself, despite all of the things that are going on with his countrymen. Things are pretty good for Nehemiah at this point in time. And so he's not there, but he's asking some people that have come from Judah, from Jerusalem, what, what's going on with our countrymen back there? And then they give him this terrible report, and notice his response in verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He was praying and fasting and mourning and all of these things for people in another place. He was doing this not just because of whatever was going on in his life, but what was going on in other people's lives. And notice his prayer in verse 5. I pray, O Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Again, he starts by reminding himself of who God is. And then he says in verse 6, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants. And notice, Confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Not that they've done. Not that the people that are really messed up have done. Not that the people that are giving you a bad name that are part of the body have done. But that we have done. That we have done, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house, the nation, for our purposes, the body of Christ as a whole, I have sinned also. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. He could have just prayed for himself. He could have just prayed for them and said, God, help them be more like me. But he said that we have done. We have done. And I can almost guarantee you that Nehemiah didn't do all of those things himself. 
but he said, we have done and we ask for forgiveness. We have acted corruptly as a nation and we, as the body of Christ in this nation, have done the same. We have acted corruptly. There are, there are terrible YouTube videos out there on a weekly basis about things that are going on inside the body of Christ that are just foolish, just ridiculous, things that are being said from pulpits that, that are so against the word of God. But the people outside the church, they don't know the word of God, so they don't know that it's against the word of God. They just see that it was some pastor, some preacher that got up behind a pulpit and said these things, and so they take it as if that's who all Christians are. That's who the body of Christ is, and worse, that's who Jesus is. And that's not the case. But we have to get to this place where we are asking forgiveness corporately as a whole body. I'm not here to argue who's done worse or who's done better or who's more at fault or who's less at fault. If you have sinned, we already talked about it. If you've been even one little thing in your entire life, you're a part of the problem just as I am. We have all sinned and fallen short and we all need to ask for forgiveness for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters. But he continues in verse 8, and he says, Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Not you've redeemed us because of who we are, because of how great we are going to be or have been, but you've redeemed us because of you, all because of you. You have redeemed us by your great power and your strong hand. And then in verse 11, oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. May that be a hallmark of each and every child of God, that we would be those servants who desire to fear the name of God. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. What an example Nehemiah was, and Daniel was the same way. In Daniel chapter 9, you're getting towards the end of Daniel's life. Daniel, at this point, most scholars believe, was already well into his 80s. So he has already been used by God miraculously. He's had the lion's den experience. He has been an example of faithfulness throughout several different governments, where he has risen in each one of the governments because he was following the wisdom of the Lord. He's this example. He's given prophecies. He's been given the opportunity to explain dreams and to read this writing by this, this hand on the wall. He's done amazing things. But notice in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So Daniel had prophesied he'd lived this miraculous life of God's hand being in and working through his life. There are so many amazing testimonies of God's power in and through him, of God's wisdom, of God speaking not just to him, but through him. And where did Daniel start? in his quest to find out what God had next for him. He started in the word of God. 
I mean, think about that. This was a prophet of God, somebody that, that God had spoken directly to. We don't know exactly. Maybe it was audible. Maybe it was just depressing in his heart. Maybe it was a dream. But God had definitely directly given him insight. And he's still reading the word of God. He's still reading about things that God has spoken to other people. And he's starting there. One of the best ways to hear God's voice in our lives is to read God's word and abide by it. You know, we we talk about, well, what's God's will for my life? Okay, well, have you already done the things that he's already specifically laid out? Well, no, because I'm, I'm asking you about this. Okay, but, but God said you can't do what you're doing right now in your life. It is clear. It is written out in the word. Well, yeah, but that's not what I'm asking about, Pastor. I'm asking you about this situation in my life. Why do you keep going back to this? Because this is where we go back to for everything. If we are not doing what God has already specifically laid out, how are we supposed to know what we're going to do in something else? That's where he started. And then he goes through verses 4 through 15, and he has this long prayer of confession. This long prayer of confession from a very godly and righteous man, and he didn't set himself above the people around him. He humbly prayed as part of the nation, just as Nehemiah did. And as you read through it, it's a hardcore confession of failure. Just time and time again, we've messed it. We've messed it up. We've blown it time and time again. We knew better, and we still went. And then he gets to to verse 16, and he says, According to all your righteousness, O Lord, I pray let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. And I would suggest to you that that is very similar to what the church in the United States faces today. Let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city from your church, from your body. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, your church and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Because we have allowed ourselves to be the authority instead of relying upon the word of God and God himself to be the authority. Now, therefore, God, in verse 17, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. It's not because of us, but because of your great mercies. And notice it's not because of your great grace. It's because of your great mercies, because we've blown it so badly. It is because of your great mercies, not single mercy big and a lot your great mercies and then in verse 19 this is where we'll close this morning oh lord hear oh lord forgive oh lord listen and act do not delay for your own sake my god for your city and your people are called by your name oh lord hear oh lord forgive oh lord listen and act do not delay for your own sake my god for your church, for your chosen generation, your royal priesthood, your holy nation, your own special people who are called by your name. Forgive us, restore us, and then use us to lead people in the right direction. Amen.